You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to New Models. On this episode, we're joined by Ben Solomon, aka King Solomon, aka KSR Iraq. Ben is a New York-based artist and filmmaker, and a close friend since we met on our first day of college over 20 years ago. This conversation began with the idea of using the metaphorical frame of contemporary digital technology to re-examine the way media, subculture, and the city operated during the intermillennium period we came of age. This can sometimes feel like stating the obvious. Cool, you're describing how a city works. But painting a picture of life before social media also gives flashes of insight and recognition, moments of both always has been and never will be again. Born and raised in downtown New York, Ben is particularly suited to colorfully illustrating the Y2K era of the city. He's also part of the legendary graffiti crew Iraq, alongside artists Dash Snow, rest in peace, Ryan McGinley, and Kunle Martins, aka Earsnot, among others. And graffiti ends up becoming a key character in our story. As an illegal pre-digital social media which the Iraq crew leveraged with mimetic savvy to achieve countercultural and art world infamy. We only scratch the surface of everything that could be said and all the stories that could be told, but there's no better guide to being young in the pre and post 9-11 years of New York than Ben Laden. I'm Lil Internet joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is Ben Solomon, aka King Solomon, aka KS or Iraq. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Ben Solomon, who actually was my roommate in college. And Ben is from New York, born and raised. And today we're going to talk about, I guess, a kind of history of New York subcultures over the course of our lifetime, but through the framework of media. Through the framework of media and devices. Yes. Communication technology, right? And also, though, we should say all of Ben's names. I don't know if he's doxxed. Oh, no, I'm fully doxxed. We can get into that later. I would say that, like, okay. my crew was early on the, like, this is me. This is me doing crime. This is me doing bad stuff. Yeah. This is my face. <laughs> this is, like, everything that's supposed to be secret on blast. Check it out. That feels like a lot of weight for me to, to talk about the history of subcultures through media and devices, but no, I'm, excited, no, no, I'm no. excited to have that conversation. <laughs> so who are you, Ben? Yeah, intro yourself. My name is Ben Solomon. I'm an artist and a filmmaker and also a commercial director and creative worker in you know whatever world that we exist in today. Yeah, I'm born and raised in New York City. I'm an elder millennial. We worked on the Beyonce video together. We have a very long and sordid history. But Ben, you've also just recently started doing interviews after a long time of kind of being good on Twitter, but not <laughs> broadcasting otherwise. But a little frame here is that we oftentimes think about, I mean, new models, right? Like we're interested in how changes in tech are changing the way that we think about 
culture or each other or communicate. I mean, when did it start? I think were we like watching Bully or something, which of course is like 2000. We were just like looking at the kids in that Larry Clark film and how they were communicating. And of course, it's like very different. The way that like the teen net worked then is really different than now. And we were thinking, all right, well, who has seen all these different eras? Who has been working all these networks through all these eras? And Julian's like, I bet Ben Solomon would have some views on this. He's seen the city transform over decades. I mean, since you were a kid in the 80s, you've seen the city transform. And then there's this kind of nice thing where the city itself, Manhattan specifically, is like a computer chip. It, like, if you just look at it from above, I mean, I'm stealing yeah. your line, but, when you, you fly, know. If you fly over Manhattan in a plane on a very clear day, it looks like a computer chip or like a processor. It's a grid with all these little bits and bytes speeding every which direction, and the buildings are all these processors or something. And it's a superconductor. Yeah, yeah, and you start to realize that just the sheer proximity and volume and speed that information can travel through New York. I mean, cities are a kind of internet as we think of it today. And New York is also always broadcast itself. Yeah. I mean, also Ben and I are born in the same year, both worked in media, both saw our entire industry shift around and collapse and rearrange in all these different ways, saw the arrival of pagers and then cell phones and then the internet and then the iPhone. And then New York, a city that's always broadcast itself and that already has this physical, human-based proximity. It's a really good frame, I think, to explore and kind of dig into this transition a bit. Especially because you're somebody who used to write graffiti, and of course, like, that, I think, factors in as, like, a communication signal. Ben, a.k.a. K.S. or a.k.a. King Solomon, it was also a graffiti writer in the crew Iraq in late 90s, early 2000s New York, which remains legendary to this day and also went viral at a time of this transition into the internet. And so as a crew that was getting a lot of media attention, that was part of a lot of the subcultures that ended up scaling to like the biggest things ever. Like, producing a lot of media content too. Yeah. Like you have all these like artists and photographers as part of your crew. So. Right. I mean, so this is a, another aspect of the framework, but maybe if you have any idea of internet as a metaphorical lens for the city, how you navigated it. Uh, my first thought there is like any city, but especially in New York City, change is not only inevitable, but it's like exponential and it's unstoppable. And when you grow up here and it's not about a like, yo, I'm from here, exclusionary sense of pride. It's just when you see that evolution firsthand, it's a jarring thing. And talking to my father, who was also born and raised in New York City, he contextualized it for me. I think probably around the time, Julian, when you and I were like living together around 20 years old, early 2000s, you know, just saying to my dad, like, damn, I don't, recognize our block or our city or our neighborhood or whatever. And he was just like, yeah, well, you know, welcome to the rest of your life. How do you think I feel? I was born in like 1942, you know, and it gave me a lot of anxiety and also gave me a lot of peace. But the city itself as an internet, yeah, I mean, the physical proximity to 
other people, other types of people, ideas. You know, you say community now and it's like a discord or it's the people <laughs> that follow you on Twitter or it's like your DM group chat with 40 people or whatever. And like not to take anything away from those things as means of communication, but like you're not really interfacing with people and culture in the same way as you are when you're like, yo, let's meet up. Hey, you want to go to this show? Can you bring us to a moment, a little Ben Solomon vignette of like a really amazing night or morning or whatever that you recall? But also where you met people. Yeah, like where, where like people- Can you like paint the scene though? Like actually just give us the cinema treatment of it. Well, I think the physical vortex of culture and people and literal connecting for me was definitely like Washington Square Park. Mm, you know, yeah. the park, keeping that sort of idea of the city as a chip. It's a square within a square, right? It's called Washington Square Square Park. <laughs> and then there's a series of circles within the square and then circles of people and circles of like certain types oh. of people form around <laughs> the circles within the circles. And once you get the lay of the land as a young kid, you're like, okay, cool. My people are over there. But then of course there's some like overlap and you know, you have that little like amoeba style community where you're like, oh, we like flew out of the fucking membrane. And now like we're also <laughs> in the raver circle a little. They're complimentary. There's a lot of overlap. Overlap. But um, yeah, I think Washington Square Park was really a center point and a way to find people and ideas and then other places to go, right? That was like the jumping off point. You know, that's like, that's the Twitter. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. obviously I'm thinking more of like early teenage years, you know, gift and curse of growing up in Manhattan is like, by the time you're 12, you're pretty much like, I'm out. I grew up <laughs> in downtown Manhattan. So for me to be like, I'm going to go for, for a walk for an hour, like I can go to Washington Square Park and go back to my house, you know? So like as soon well, as I can- streets. I grew up on Broadway and Franklin. Oh, nice. So you go out your door and like shop in Uniqlo and like- <laughs> Exactly. Well, now my childhood home is the center of the mall. Now it's a little south of the food court, a little southeast <laughs> of like the luxury section. It's right where all the bootleg stuff is. You know, that was there. But, you know, again, speaking about Manhattan exponentially changing, when you say, oh, Broadway and Franklin or, you know, lower Manhattan, Tribeca, Soho, like that means one thing now that did not mean the same thing back then. It wasn't, you know, Avenue D and it wasn't 139 yeah. and Lennox or whatever, but it was like, you know, <laughs> Manhattan still had space for fucking working class families and people that were like, I'm going to have my home here. Whereas now it's like, go fuck yourself. If you're, <laughs> you know, anything short of like multiple M's, it's like, there's nothing to even talk about. But, um, popular culture and media and the proliferation of subcultures through that did play a role. It wasn't just that I found out about things by going outside, you know? I lived very close to the Brooklyn Banks and like as soon as I was like eight years old, I was like, I skateboard, right? So yeah. skateboarding, as much as I like would be very clear that I am not a skateboarder today, the first entry point was a skateboard because you can't hide that, right? Like mm. if I'm on the street and I'm skating, and you're on the street and you have a skateboard or you're skating, it's there. It's like, oh, okay, we, you know, we have a mutual that's skateboarding, yeah, yeah, you know, or whatever yeah. it is. Uh, speaking about graffiti, especially in the 80s and early 90s, that's not something you could escape in New York City. You couldn't opt to be like, I don't see this. You could, mm -hmm. like many people, be like, I pay it no mind. It means nothing to me. It's vandalism or it's disgusting or it literally just looks like white noise. But as soon as you sort of like flip that switch, there's no escaping that. You can't go out of your house and be like, I'm not paying attention to this because you fucking see it. And then you, as a kid, you start figuring out how to read it. 
it was there, but then like the real point of entry again was Subway Art, the book, Martha Cooper and Henry Chalfant. That's like the same book that the dude in Berlin that's like real hip hop, you know, like it's the same thing that got him. But that was the same thing that got me just down the street from where those trains were painted or whatever. And Style Wars, obviously, which is, you know, yeah, iconic, the, the greatest yeah. documentary film of all time. So those types of cues of skateboarding, graffiti, style, you know, like ravers fucking dress like ravers, graffiti mm. writers dress like graffiti writers, like skaters and graffiti writers might dress similar. But like when you get to the sneakers, you're like, oh, you do this or you do that. <laughs> or it's like, do you have a skateboard in your hand or do you have paint on your hand? Like punk obviously had the most defined uniform. Like I remember when I started knowing hardcore kids, my mind was blown because I was like, but they're just wearing champion hoodies and like <laughs> army pants, you know? And I'd be like, but I'm wearing champion hoodie and army pants. I, but they like that, and you know, as young people in New York too, back then, I think a lot of the physical spaces, starting with the park, but then going into the venues and the scenes and the whatever, also a lot of it was about access, right? Because when you're 14 and 15, you, you I, like, I couldn't go mm-hmm. to the yeah. tunnel. The club, the tunnel for anyone who's, you know, yeah. I was like 14 and I looked like I was 11 and I thought <laughs> I looked like I was like 26, but like I see the photos and I look like a fucking little baby. So it's like, you know, hardcore shows were like very kid friendly. They're all ages. They're matinees. Like the, it's, it's an open thing. Like you want to go to fucking Coney Island high? Sure. I'm not into hardcore music, <laughs> but like I can go to that show and I can totally. like get it, you know, and physically get into it and then be like, cool. I don't like this music. I don't necessarily feel like I'm like the perfect fit here, but I'm like now part of this. I'm in Mm. this room with all these people and this shit is happening. And, you know, you have these cues and you have these meeting points and then you are jumping off into the world. I actually just realized we think a lot about how subculture functions differently in this era compared to in the past. And using this reverse metaphor, your outfit was your profile and it wasn't flexible. It was really about presenting an alignment with a certain group and calling out to a particular kind of person, you know? It makes me want to ask though, Giuliani's broken windows policy is like 97. Giuliani came in 92. 93. No, 93. When was broken windows? Right, so he's elected in 92. I would say broken windows, they probably implemented it in 94, 95, and then sort of just ratcheted it up. So all the things you're talking about, skateboarding, graffiti, hanging out in public parks, doing whatever, his policy basically puts the kibosh on all these things right at the time when digital culture, he's paving this neoliberal pathway for being like, no, you cannot define your identity in public space. It's like he clear cuts New York City so that when Facebook or proto so Facebook can move in. tech can move in and it can end up being that pathway. There must have been so much pent up energy for that. And then the cabaret laws and the closing of the clubs and yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's also important. And I know there was a question also about public space and broken windows, but I think it doesn't really end with Giuliani. And if anything, Giuliani's like yeah. the little baby beginning of that. And that stuff really comes to fruition post 9-11 and under Bloomberg, where it's quite yes. literally like, yes. hey, we're kicking you out of this space and like a company's moving in or like, hey, you know, oh, you're yeah. outside. What's your reason for being outside? And you're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but I think that's like a really good, clear way to cut through all that stuff. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that you can do a lot to like thwart that public space and meeting place and energy, but like you actually can't stop it 
in New mm. York. Like even yeah. if we look at what happened during COVID, it's like, okay, cool. A month or two of like things slow down, whatever. And then it's public spaces were reinvigorated in a way that they haven't been like since I was a kid, because all of a sudden it's like, well, this is all we have. We actually <laughs> only have public space. Yeah. If you live in an apartment building with a thousand people, and 5% come outside to hang out in front of the building, that's a pretty significant meeting of people in a physical space that Mm. something can come out of. And also we're talking about parks and this and that, but it's like public space can literally get down to like the bench, you know, Mm. the sidewalk, like Mm. the bodega. Yeah. Do you have any memories of early Giuliani moments? Like, was there a moment where you actually felt like things were changing or freedoms were getting restricted early on? I think, you know, as a teenager, you're kind of just living it. And also like, there wasn't the online discourse. I couldn't like go and see what the world thought of all the stuff, you know? (laughs) So, but I think like, I was very aware of squatters rights and like Mm. LES squats as like an actual thing. Because again, through Washington Square Park, I knew people that were like, I live in a squat or (laughs) I volunteer for the squat. Like squatters rights and LES squatters like has the full spectrum of stuff from like, grimy, crazy street shit to like high level political reclaiming abandoned buildings as an act of rebellion and revolution and, and da, da, da. but like that clash was very real to me. It also like New York one, which is like the local New York city cable news channel. I remember that story, which was very squarely like Giuliani and the police are on this side, squatters are on this side, and like regular New Yorkers or whatever, like somewhere Mm. in the middle. So not only from watching it on the news perspective, but also understanding like, oh, I know people that live there. Oh, I've been to a punk show at, you know, C-Squat. There was a direct connection, I think, and that was probably like the first example of feeling and understanding something like that and seeing its effect. And of course, like that had... Somewhat of a happy ending, right? A massive chunk of buildings were sold to tenants for $1. I mean, at this point in my life, I know people who were born in those squats who like grew up in like nice apartments and now own their piece of the co-op of the squat. So that I think was like my first direct understanding of city policy, politics, police activity, and people I knew and like the New York that I lived in. I mean, 94 also kids came out. 95 it came out, I think. 95. But it was probably shot in 294, is that right? I mean, I remember seeing it when it came out in Virginia, and it was kind of like a marketing video for New York, uh, <laughs> except for a t- teenager. It was like a warning for adults and a how-to for 13-year-olds. <laughs> How did it feel to see, I don't know, your people your age hanging yeah. out where you hung out? Reflected back. In 95, I was 13 years old, right? When kids came out, that was probably the first experience of being like, I know some of these people, right? Again, from skateboarding, like I knew Harold from a very early age. Like another just little sidebar is like, I had a babysitter who was like the cool, my cool babysitter because she was like a senior at my high school. And then like when Supreme opened, she was like, oh, these dudes I know like opened a shot, you know, and I was like 12 years old. And like, so I knew them through her and I was like, that's my big sister. So weirdly, like I had a connection there early on. And then again, it's like just go into the banks with a skateboard in your hand if you're like down to fucking hang out and you can keep up like, you know. (laughs) But I think also in that same vein, like early on New Yorker style, I was like, 
yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, I know those guys. Oh, it's a movie? Like, oh, cool. You know? Um, I think if I was born in 81 or 80, like, I would have had a slightly different mm. experience. But I think retroactively, when you look at it, you're like, damn, that is revered and looked at and studied and talked about by younger people for good reason, because 95 to 05 kind of window is like, that's sort of the last hurrah of, like, real physical cultural, like it doesn't exist in the same way and it never will again. And that's neither good or bad. That's just like a factual thing. So around this time, so you're like 13 when kids came out, but how old were you when Iraq started forming? What's the genesis to that? Officially, Iraq started in 1997. I think officially I was like put down with Iraq in 1999. I knew Irsnot, Kunle Martins from around 1995, from Park days. He actually was like kind of a dick to me. And I also <laughs> admittedly like probably deserved it. Can you describe Kunle for people who maybe aren't already familiar? Kunle now or Kunle then? Um, <laughs> maybe your first impression of him and now also. <laughs> Kunle was a kid that like, he was always on his skateboard and you start seeing these tags. You're snot. Now it's like there's a million other graffiti writers, brands, bands, names, things that have that like grotesque name. But it's like people didn't really write names like that. People wrote names that sounded tough and cool or really simple or two initials or like pseudo profound or whatever. But Earsnot was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, that's a crazy, weird tag. And that's a weird name to be like, yo, I'm Earsnot. Even before it was Ear Snot Iraq, right? Like, it just Ear Snot alone is fucking weird enough. And also, in 1995, like, I'm a super toy. Like, a toy is a whack, inexperienced, like, unimportant graffiti writer, right? I'm definitely not claiming, like, at 13 I was, like, dope. I wouldn't even say I'm dope now. I am, but I just wouldn't say it. <laughs> and he, um, just by picking that name and the way he would write, it stood out. And it wasn't really in a good way. It wasn't like, oh, shit, this is, it was just, like, kind of ugly, kind of offensive. And then when you were like, does it say ear snot, you know? And then when this dude started skating around the cube and skating around Washington Square Park, he was like a tall, lanky, like awkward kid from uptown. He had like a puka shell necklace or something. He's always like, I don't think that's true, but like, it's true. You guys should have him on. He can, <laughs> he can dispute it. But yeah, like it's all like this cross identity thing where it's like, it's kind of raver, kind of hip hop, like kind of graffiti, kind of <laughs> skate. I can't remember if at the very first reveal of like, that's your snot. It was like, and he's gay. But like very soon after the like, and he's gay part came into it. And now it's like, oh yeah, whatever. But like in the nineties, that's a thing. It signifies things. It means something. Again, it's like another part of the uniform. But he had this crazy tag and that reputation preceded him because people were like, well, that's ear snot. You know, it's not like GH1 or like motor. It was like, you know, it's like it's fucking ear snot. Like, you're like that fucking guy. Washington Square Park was like literally like a pit of kids. And you're just like thrown in the pit and you're like, oh, what's up? Oh, what's up? And, you know, you find your friends, you find your enemies, you know. We knew each other. And then, you know, fast forward 97, like he had started this crew, Iraq. Whack STF came up with that name. So like, again, just like graffiti history, racking is boosting. It's an integral part of graffiti culture, but it's also an integral part of outlaw culture. And it's also just like a thing that kids do. You just described the slang term with another slang term. Yeah. I don't think people are going to get... Racking is boosting. What did I say? You said you, racking, racking is oh, boosting. Shit. Wait, and also for the international audience, this is like founded in the 90s, pre-Bush Gulf War. War. So like the name Iraq 
is like this really charged word that you're hearing on the news all the time. And graffiti is always about memes in the first place, totally. right? It's exactly. always exactly. mimetic. Yeah. It's exactly. about plastering, exactly. getting as much attention, plastering your name as many places as possible. I mean, ear snot, right? It's extremely meme savvy. And in a time yeah. when like yeah. doing anything for attention, this is something that's still, I think, so alien probably mm. today is that when we were growing up, there was a such thing as being an attention whore. Right. As like doing <laughs> it for attention and it's a negative thing. Yeah. Oh, he's just doing that for attention. Yeah, the irony there in this context is like, you're fucking writing graffiti. Graffiti <laughs> is literally based on attention. Yeah. You're fundamentally looking at something that's not yours and being like, I'm putting my name on yeah. it and I hope you see it. <laughs> and you can say whatever thing about like, oh, it's just for other writers. It's just for me. It's But at the end of the day, it's like, it better fucking be about attention. If it's not, then you have like real, like writing Writing graffiti for attention is a mental disorder. If you're writing graffiti, like not for attention, you have like serious problems. I think the, the name Iraq and racking is stealing. Wait, racking is stealing. But yes, just ra- racking, yes. racking is stealing. R-A-C-K. But again, being mimetic, right? Like understanding Saddam Hussein is like the great evil of the world. It's like Iraq. That's fucking dope. Yeah. 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 You know, in between 95 and 97, let's say like the group of friends that solidified, we eventually sort of commingled with what was Iraq at the time. And then ultimately that group of people is what came to define Iraq for better or worse. Those years are not like, oh, like art world fucking darlings and a long list of like dead people. It's just like people that Kunle and I, and we're all connected. But um, one of our friends, Joey Newfield, rest in peace. His parents had a brownstone. It was right downtown. And I don't know that they were actually cool. I think he was just a dick. And so it was like, we can smoke cigarettes in my basement. And like, once you can smoke cigarettes in a house of 15 year olds, that means you can do anything in the house, you know? And so like that became the spot. And literally through that being like this central downtown in Soho, like crib where we would all be. That's actually how Kunle and Rehab and a couple people that was Iraq at the time got permanently bonded to us because like we had this space and we could do whatever and they would go racking or boosting or stealing for the lay person all day and then stop by Joey's house and be like, oh, check this out, and like dump a bag of jackets on the floor, dump a bag of fucking GNC powders on the floor, whatever it was <laughs> that month or whatever. And, you know, another thing that is to this day a defining factor, but back then was also like a crucial thing about our crew. You know, we weren't the first, and it's not exclusive to us, but there was like some very, very wealthy, insane, like outlier type of people. And then at the time, there was people in the same room that were like sleeping on the train. And there was like people that'd be like, oh, let's get food. I'll put it on my fucking grandma's credit card. And then there was people that was like, oh, I stole this like fucking honey bun from the deli because like that's all I'm going to eat right now. And like very early on, there was definitely like tension, but we're friends and we have these things in common and it grew from there. I also wanted to ask pre-internet, New York was a very, very big city. So you had a bootleg CDs and video market. And you also had public access TV. And what was going on around that time in like sort of the underground physical media infrastructure? Yeah, public access was definitely a super, super influential and like crucial piece of 
my growing up and my interest, public access was another place in the media space where like different ideas converged, not only because of the unpredictability of like what was on at midnight and what came on at 1230, but also because it was an unfiltered place where like actual New York people and cultural participants were putting shows out there. And like, you can't take anything away from MTV in the 90s, but like MTV, that's a separate thing. And so, yeah, there was like, you know, I'm an MNN guy because I grew up in Manhattan. So Manhattan is Manhattan something network, but it was like channel 34, 56, 57, and one other channel. There were four channels of oh, public yeah, access. For Manhattan. Wow. BCAT, which was like Brooklyn, Queens, had maybe two. But yeah, Talk Comics was my favorite show. And it was like two, like, you know, they look like SBF or something. Like, you know, they look like <laughs> modern fucking nerd, like the classic nerd from like the 90s to now. It's the same look, like Jufro, like super awkward. like what, and, it, and it was exactly what the show was called, Talk Comics. And it was a call-in show. And for 30 minutes, like every week, these kids would get fucking destroyed. Because again, remember, there was no, there was no Twitter dunking on people. There was no like, yo, I made this it went viral. It was like, I'm going to watch public access from my fucking union job in Queens, holding down the fucking security gate at the truck yard or whatever. <laughs> they would come on and they'd be like, oh, X-Men this week is blah, blah, blah. And like Image Comics is really doing exciting shit. And like, we're going to take calls. And it would just be ruthless <laughs> grown men just flaming these fucking kids to shreds. And it was also, but then you're also like, you got to be in on this joke because like you never <laughs> once are like, maybe we shouldn't do a call-in show. Like maybe we should do, you know. Um, so so that was, a, that was a legendary one. And then there was an incredible, incredible show called Indie Scent Exposure. Indie, even though he spelled it I-N-D-I-E, but it was Indie, Scent, S-E-N-T, Exposure. And it was like, the dude looked like fucking B-Real. I'm pretty sure he was just like a straight up white dude. He wore a chronic hat and lokes <laughs> and had a big ass beard and would, and, but was like mad, crazy, like OD dead ass New York guy that would just chain smoke blunts and play the real rap videos that you wanted to see and do interviews with all these cats. Like he was like up in the shows and his name was Johnny B. High. Indecent exposure. Oh, indecent exposure. I was like not getting it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. But in, in, indecent. Yeah, just indecent. smoking once and be like, oh, we're in Brooklyn with Smith and Wesson. That to me was like the public access music video equivalent of like Stretch and Bobito, mm -hmm. right? Think about Stretch and Bob. I mean, that was off of Columbia's airwaves. And they stayed on long after anyone there was involved in the school in any way because that show was like a fucking public service that you could not remove from New York City. You can literally trace like the most influential artists, at least of hip hop, like to this one radio show mm. that was on from one to 5 a.m. once a week and be like every single person that if you're like our age defined all this shit for you, their first thing was that, you know? And then talking about graffiti again, the communication that goes on in illegal graffiti, you know, once you have the like they live goggles on where you like you see graffiti, you can't turn it off. So it's like people write messages, you know, oh shit, they wrote on his mom's door. Like, oh, they got into a fight on that corner on 86th and 3rd and they wrote like catch you next time. That 
as a kid, pre-internet, pre like the, AR layer. the ability yeah. to dissect, yeah, pre-ability to dissect and like share that stuff with other people worldwide. You just see that firsthand, and you can't send a cell phone photo. And I guess if you want to spend the money to take the photo and get it developed and this <laughs> and that and whatever, you can share it with your friend two weeks later, but it might be gone. Or you could just be like, "Yo." You saw what MQ wrote to JA on 86th Street? Like, yo, we got to go see this shit. <laughs> you know, again, with the most respect to the foundational pieces of graffiti culture, is like the dudes that paint trains, it was all about that. And a lot of those guys, their goal was to do whole cars that would communicate to your mom or your grandma <laughs> or the guy that worked at the MTA. You're communicating, right? You're writing messages. You're doing Campbell soup cans. You know, you're doing shit that like, has a pop reference that you can like translate to an audience that doesn't have the option to be like, I'm going to change the channel. Mm. I don't want to look at this. I'm not going to go into that gallery because it's like, guess what? It's on the fucking train mm. and you got to take that train to work. So you're looking <laughs> at it, you know? It's like another kind of public access channel, basically the train writing. It was like, okay, this is going to be broadcast through the city. Yeah, 100%. And again, like I can't speak of personal experience with trains. I barely, barely remember. I certainly did get on the train as a baby when it was covered in graffiti. But I'm saying it started there and then translated into that 90s era street bombing, which was like leaving messages, you know, and that was another thing that Earsnot did really well, right, was that he would write kind of stupid punchlines when that sort of first, maybe second wave, I don't know of what we would call now, like street art started happening and people would like wheat post their Xerox pictures like in a parking lot or whatever. Kunle would see that and, you know, there's like a halftone image of like a lady on a phone, like screaming on House and Street and he goes up to it with a black marker and says like, oh fuck, I'm pregnant, ear snot. And it's like, that shit blows up because everyone in Soho, they don't know fucking ear snot. They don't give a fuck about graffiti, but they see a stupid picture of a woman on a cell phone and it's clearly not an advertisement. It's clearly some illegal artist experiment. But then this guy comes and makes it funny and makes it like, okay, cool. And he doesn't write it with a million stars. And it's, it's like written like big, bold, legible black handwriting. Yeah. And it's like- that kind of communication is definitely, that's the most public access. You don't yeah. have to fucking put a request into the government to get airtime because <laughs> it's your constitutional right. You just say, you know, fuck that. I'm taking it. Listen to this. Yeah, Iraq. Yeah. One other thing about public access building on the talk comics thing, call-in shows were the most lively part of it and they did infiltrate and like mirror graffiti and Washington Square Park and rave mm -hmm. culture and all these things because all the different pockets had like one or two call-in shows that sort of represented them and people would call in and talk shit or call in and do shout, you know, like shout outs obviously is like a huge thing. And then worth mentioning, I mean, this is a little later and this is like when probably the AOL chat room had its heyday, but there was like a chat line. It was just like a 917 number you call and there'd be like a hundred kids on the phone at once <laughs> and people would like hook up off of it. People would fight off of it. People would buy drugs off of it and people would also get fucked up and be with 10 people and be on the chat line, you know, like it just like. But can you explain how it worked? Like what that was like? Yeah. So I'm not like a fucking phone freaker, like historian, but it was sort of like that, yeah. you know, it was that kind of switchboard thing where it was like oh. analog phone. It was like star six and you could like do private room oh, or something. Right, so it's right. like if you were talking, I mean, it was mostly chaos. It was mostly like 30 <laughs> people talking at once. But if you could like break through and be like hit star six, you know, then you're in a private room or whatever. And you're like connected like that. Anyways, full full sidebar, but like a valuable 
What a gem. Thing. What a gem. No, that's yeah. incredible. I didn't realize that was, ha- I mean, I guess I didn't realize that like party lines were even still a thing. But when you were talking about all this graffiti writing in the 90s that was not just doing these massive pieces, but just like gestures. But as the city changes, which it does very often, it's kind of crazy how some even random piece of graffiti from like 30 years ago will be on a building and the context around it will completely change. And then suddenly one day they demolish it to like build a high rise or something. And yeah. that must be ben such was a talking crazy... about this. I think it was a oh, 32C. Yeah, like, so maybe in your own words, since you've sort of skinned the city or, you know, you and your friends with graffiti, like with writing, with marking it, how was that experience of transformation? I mean, when you you do graffiti, I'm I'm guessing you probably are thinking about people seeing it like like in the next week, right? And then later on, like people die and suddenly there's these traces decades later of them still around the city and then sometimes they disappear, get crossed out. I don't know. It's a really interesting, maybe you can illustrate that a bit for us. Graffiti inevitably is sort of centered around impermanence and like a temporary thing that can't ever stop. I mean, this goes even back to the train era before the buff when they started removing graffiti off the train systematically, which led to no graffiti on the trains, which obviously led to graffiti everywhere (laughs) else but the trains. You could have beef. So someone disses your piece. You could have just like an asshole with a black can of spray paint who just puts a line through it. You could have the rain, the snow, the sleet, the you know, it's an impermanent thing. It's in a public space. It's traveling. It's on metal. You're also, keep in mind, doing it with like things you are racking or boosting or stealing. (laughs) I mean, granted in the seventies and early eighties, like that paint is probably good for like a thousand years. It'll just give you cancer instantly, (laughs) but like it'll stay. But you know, again, you're fighting the elements, you're fighting the city. And then when graffiti goes onto the streets, pre-Giuliani time, it was a little less obvious how impermanent graffiti was because like Koch, Dinkins, the city is in disarray and there's squats everywhere and there's burning cars and there's, you know, holes in buildings. So it's like you do a tag, it's probably going to stay there. Right. But by the time we started really writing, even in the nineties, it is this constant maintenance practice, right? It's not something you do once and you rest on your laurels. Cause even if that one thing stays, it's like, Oh, you did that one thing. Like you're a fucking nobody. And so it's sort of built into it. And You know, through Broken Windows and Giuliani and Bloomberg and all those things, obviously it's a lot more like literal when it's like you do a tag and you come back the next day and it's like painted over. But also as the city starts evolving at this like, you know, hyper speed, permanence and impermanence play off each other because you got to do more. You got to come back. You got to be persistent. You have to be semi like psychotic and you have to be dedicated. But then on the flip side, when something does stay, You know, when you see a VFR 95 tag, that's totally different than when you see a VFR 2023 tag. Now, like sidebar for not even like layman, just for like non-graffiti specific, New York graffiti specific people. So whatever, VFR is like the illest writer of all time, let's say, right? (laughs) He abbreviates it to VFR. He, as a street bomber, he was one of the guys that was like really adamant about dating all his tags. And he is, you know, an Mm. all city writer. So he has full stretches of like VFR 92, VFR 93, VFR 94, VFR 95. Then there's kind of like a gap. Then there's like some 98 stuff. There's 2000 stuff. And even in 97, when you were like, yo, that's a VFR 92 tag, that kind of had a different feeling Mm. than when you saw the 94 one or whatever. And then now, 
you know, 30 years later, when you see those, you're like, that thing fucking survived. That thing is a cockroach. That thing is like a fucking horseshoe crab. That thing has been through fucking hell and back and survived nuclear fallout and is there. And again, the beauty and sort of joy of being a graffiti writer in New York or even just understanding graffiti because you usually have to be an active participant. There are a few exceptions to that rule. I get to see these crazy archaeological finds of my daily routine and have my fucking mind blown, mm -hmm. you know? That tag has seen more than, like, young people I'm friends with, you know what I mean? It's like, it's older than you. You know, it got on the subway with a token, you know? It didn't have an email address. And then, obviously, when you get into the high numbers of graffiti mortality rates, you know, that obviously plays a factor where it's like the last living piece of some people is, you know, a little marker tag and your average citizen is like, has no sense that it exists, no sense that that person exists, no sense that there's any significance to it. But me, I'm like, if I could, I'll bring a fucking chisel and like take this brick out of the foundation of this building and like put it in the flat file somewhere just because I know what that means to me or whatever. Are there any egregious or like particularly sad examples of something with a lot of historical weight that turned into like an ice cream museum or something? <laughs> Everything's a fucking ice cream museum in New York now. So like anything that was a monument, any clothing store, any venue, any meeting place, any corner where something significant happened or where Biggie kicked the freestyle that's on that VHS tape that everybody's seeing, it's like the best thing that shows up in now is like a Timberland ad, mm. you know? And it's like, yo, this is the spot. But it's like, other than that, it's all fucking ice cream museum. <laughs> right. It's all that. And like, I think graffiti just gives me a very direct entry point into thinking about like how much is gone and ice cream museum. <laughs> I mean, this is like a little side question, but like, are people actively like writing, like are younger people, like, is that still a communication medium, would you say? A hundred percent. I would say if anything, recently graffiti on a global scale, I don't know if I would say renaissance, but it's definitely like having another moment. Mm. And I would say that in America, those like 18 to 24 months of COVID recalibrated and undid essentially like 30 years of broken window policing mm. in all 50 states were like New York easy. Like New York got blown out. It's still blown out. Like, and then once they started cleaning stuff up again, people were just like, fuck it. I just do this, whatever. But like cities like LA where like you basically barely saw graffiti, like it got done. It got documented. Like writers knew about it, but it wasn't like part of the public landscape. Mm -hmm. Like it is in New York. Go to LA right now. LA looks fucking crazy. It's covered in graffiti mm -hmm. head to toe. And like, if you're going to actually look at what event, what time period, what happened that shifted that, it was COVID. Totally. And that has to do with a million different factors, but like, that's a thing. And Portland, also, Seattle, what it like. Yeah, like just thinking about how real estate has changed. I mean, I heard something like in SF, commercial real estate in downtown SF is 80% off peak because, you know, people work remotely and tech companies are downsizing. And as like the economics of real estate change in these cities, you can imagine them just becoming canvases again. I mean, that's kind of cool to think that it's still viable. Because I was like, has there been like a causification or has that been a threat to it? Yeah, 100%. You know, the relationship between real estate, real estate development, marketing of neighborhoods, and graffiti, aka for a real estate developer, street art, <laughs> is this fascinating thing where it's like graffiti and real estate developers should be sworn enemies. You know, as we've seen, neighborhood creation almost 
as like a new concept where people are like, oh, what if we bought up this industrial neighborhood or this low income neighborhood? Wynwood, Miami is obviously the main example. And that's a tricky one because like Wynwood did have a lot of locals and natives and cultural things. And that really did physically and also like historically essentially get bulldozed out by people that built that stuff around the idea of like, this is a street art neighborhood. <laughs> and like, I, I like admittedly on some, on some like NPR, like, oh, sidebar, we actually took money from these people. And I just want to make that clear. You know, I worked on some projects in Wynwood at the sort of like peak moment when that was happening. I did, I guess, write some sanctioned graffiti there, but I didn't really work in that sense. I was doing like content. I participate in society, yeah. like, you know, whatever. Don't crucify me. Well, definitely don't crucify me. I'm Jewish, but um, <laughs> the- uh, Or you'd be the next Jesus. You'd be the next Jesus. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll take it. I think that bleeds into the state of affairs today, which is like, there is this weird co-option of these things that are like, oh, you have the money to like live in this neighborhood you can be like i know all about this stuff whatever alec monopoly painted fucking richie rich on the side of the building i live in <laughs> you know it's a it's a very odd thing because these are fundamentally and like philosophically like opposites yeah. sworn enemies and somehow just like everything else in the world we live in now it's like people with the money are going to find a way to bring it in and be like no 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 it's all good now and it's like hard to fight because you know we got bills but I mean, we should get into, because we've been recording for a while already, when Iraq sort of blew up, the arrival of the internet, I mean, Dash, Deitch, Vice, also how friends of yours were using the internet. I mean, I remember Splay, which was just the local Twitter in a way for New York. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can just describe the internet hitting. And then also like a big thing you've been talking about is that Iraq blew up kind of because you were graffiti writers willing to take pictures of yourself yeah. and put them out there and yeah. use media as well as like another way to get up basically. I think those two ideas are easier for me to address separately. And maybe I'll start with this sort of discussion of Iraq and the use of media. There was groups of kids that were white and black and Dominican and rich and poor and gay and straight and punk and hip hop that like came together in the form of a graffiti crew that predated Iraq. We did not invent the fucking United Colors of Benetton <laughs> on fucking benzos and crack like vision like that happened before. But what was different was. Not only the amount of documentation, it, mainly in photography, a little bit in video of everything that was happening, not just the finished piece, not just the day after, not just like the hot girl at the party or whatever, but all of it like blood and shit and drugs and stealing and girls and guys and dicks and coke and fucking bad graffiti, good graffiti, like embarrassing, vulnerable shit that people would be like, yo, don't like, not only don't take that picture, but don't ever fucking show that to someone. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, like I'm in Vice magazine with like coke dick on a couch <laughs> next to like another dude, you like, know? Literally, like literally that's like, a dash like, no oh. photo of Quinley. Yeah. yeah. It's like all of the dash of no photos, you know? <laughs> So photography 
as it relates to graffiti, they're very intertwined. And I would say that in terms of subcultures and street culture and shit like that, graffiti is very, very prone to photography because again, speaking about the impermanence and the constant changing of the surface, it's like you have to take photos of your graffiti because yes, the main point is for other people to see it. But if you don't take the photo, you might never see it again. Those dudes painting trains, they might never see the train again. You might go from the Bronx to Coney Island yard to paint some train line that you literally will never Mm. take again. So it's like, you take the photo, it exists, it runs, other people see it, but we took a lot of photos. We stole disposable cameras. I mean, in the early exploits of Iraq, the prominence of a camera at all times and everybody's sort of willingness to like have photos be taken allowed for documentation of stuff that maybe people didn't see or experience outside of like living a life like that. And then at the same time, graffiti also was pretty early on with message boards Mm. because dudes in the Midwest want to know about New York graffiti and New York graffiti writers want to see what's going on in San Francisco and graffiti magazines as physical media because again, carrying on that like zine, DIY, ethos that's like early hip-hop punk rock hardcore all these things it was like yeah you collect photos you trade photos through the mail with people you go to fucking kinko's (laughs) you make that magazine and you sell it at the one graffiti shop in the 20 cities that have them and all of a sudden you're a publisher you know but anyhow so for us like 99 2000 era it was like Photos of a kid wearing dunks with a Spider-Man mask doing coke and a big bed with shit everywhere. It's like if you fucking saw that and you're the same age as us or you're a little older or definitely if you're a little younger, you're like, holy shit, that's fucking dope. Now, a million fucking kids before us like wore dunks and did coke and had a Spider-Man mask and like had a bunch (laughs) of shit laid out on their bed. But not that many people like let someone take a photo and then that photo found its way into the ether of the world, right? That's where the stuff starts to connect. And then also it's like, it's not, oh, it's ABC crew, you know, and fucking like Jimmy won. It's like, no, it's like, oh, that's ear snot, Iraq. Was it all kind of accidental though? Or was it actually deliberate? Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. I can't speak for like an entire group of people. I would say that Orion McGinley, who was like on his way to becoming an established and now obviously like legendary photographer, was aware of the images he Mm. was making and definitely was like embedded in that stuff, knowing these are incredible photos that no one's ever taken and everyone is going to need to see, want to see. He obviously was very much legitimately and is very much legitimately like part of Iraq. And I think that is part of what is special about all these images as well, is that it's not like an artist embedding himself with a group of subjects and Mm -hmm. making art about them. And it's not a journalist studying something and going deep into the forest and capturing a little bit of it and bringing it back to fucking civilization, right? It was like, we were those people. There was no separation. It wasn't like, oh, Ryan McGinley knows these people. It was like, Ryan is Iraq, Mm -hmm. you know? And that understanding of both sides of the lens, I guess, allowed for like intimacy and access and that work to be created in a way that probably was impossible otherwise. And I think that is reflected a lot in where Iraq went from there and sort of like the ability to be essentially like, 
I don't know about famous, but like, let's say like- Infamous. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's also an interesting way that print media was working in the late 90s, early aughts. It's a point we've made before in different podcasts, but because of desktop publishing, because of consumer grade tech, you could make small magazines that looked really chic. I mean, I think about self-service and I think about Index Magazine and I think about also New York specific. And there's a real hunger for yeah, like- on the go. Yeah, and like- internationally between Paris and Berlin and New York and Tokyo, there's this real curiosity of this new globalism. And it was a confluence of these different factors, part of which was that you had these amazing magazines that were acting like the internet before the internet was like what we thought about the internet in say 2010. But there's there's also a sensationalist streak. I mean, you think about YBA in the yeah, UK, right. right? CKY, I mean, Big Brother, Vice also, Vice Magazine. Life Sucks Die. Uh, right, oh, right, Life Sucks, sucks die. die. Totally. Right. I mean, we always talk about like, Life Sucks Die was like, send us pictures of your girlfriend's titties and we'll send you caps. You know, it was like really like wild. And then they published the photos. It was like really wild shit. That was also the interview Noriega. where Nori called Pharrell a flagrino. Right. <laughs> oh my God. I remember that. Got a lot of burn between me and you in our early friendship days. Um, yeah, I think another thing that's worth saying there in terms of sensationalism and globalism and media was that it was the new millennium. Yeah, like things are changing, right. but also everyone's like, but what's the real shit? I mean, I think mm. that's the irony that like we see now in 2023. It's like still the same thing where people are like, what's the real thing that is happening? Uh-huh. And essentially when you say that, you mean like, what is the actual youth culture that isn't about buying and selling something and whatever? And if that exists today, that's a different episode maybe. There are these like amazing, this Forever magazine. Actually, there's so much small publishing happening again in New York. There's like all these kids who are like writing, they're poets. They're like living online, but also de-virtualizing in New York City in like kind of beautiful, insane ways. And they're producing these magazines. That gave me hope. We got sent this from by Madeline Cash and I love it. But yeah, and I think also going back to physical spaces, you know, A-Life popping up and giving sort of like a central place where like people would come in from Paris, from Tokyo, from Mm. wherever and just be like, oh, I'm just going here because like someone is going to be there and I can find a thread into this world world that I heard about or sniffed out or sensed or whatever. And then there was obviously, maybe it's a little later, but galleries and maybe quote unquote OGs of a previous era that foster some of that talent. And that also, you know, there's pros and cons there, as we know, because that stuff isn't always done purely out of Mm. love or affinity for like young artists trying to find their way or whatever. But the importance of a physical space that harbors a physical scene that expands on what that is because another huge part of Iraq as like a cultural moment is like very quickly it was not just New York dudes that knew each other from Washington Square Park and we were like this interconnected worldwide Mm -hmm. web of people making those inroads and and keeping it going so I mean of course in the Arts. I mean, there's the story of Vice magazine exploded with super edgy shit that would get it canceled immediately if it came out right now. Of course, they ended up getting a ton of funding and buying the building that had two of the most popular DIY venues in Williamsburg. And it was like the beginning of the mm-hmm. end for the neighborhood. Really weird, like super cynical flex or something. I mean, there was before that, of course, it was like Iraq Deitch Project show. Dash Snow, who was a member of Iraq, had this huge art career and tragically 
died. Maybe you can give us an abbreviated story of that time. Well, I think like the funny thing about the early part of post 9-11 is that like, oh, you yeah, know, this horrible tragedy happened. and like, right, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah. 9-11, whatever. But um, we were on this crazy globalization, like it's a big world and New York's just one of many cities and like we should think about this and you should think about that and whatever. And then that should happen. And for us and kind of for the world, it was like, no, we're back in New York. We're back downtown mm. again, like to use my very ineloquent phrase, like this is the real shit because this massive world event happened here and all eyes on us again. And in a weird way, it sort of like kept the crown in New York for like another couple mm. of years. And again, it's also like right on the money for us because it's like we're already Iraq. We're already Saddam Hussein. We're already, so you, you know, did terrorist. And we're already, yeah, of course. I'm Jewish and I'm in Iraq. Of course I did fucking 9 Iraq collabo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm also a Mossad agent. So it's like, you know, I got it all covered. You know, I think when you get into like the art careers that really flourished early was Ryan McGinley. Mm. A lot of that was images of people in and from and around Iraq doing, you know, what I could only describe as sort of like Iraq shit. And obviously all of us were making work in different ways, Dash included. Ryan was team gallery, I should say too. I feel like we should shout out Jose. So like, oh, yeah. yeah, so it was team gallery. For sure. Yeah. Same gallery as Corey Archangel, which is just kind of interesting placing that because Deitch is like both very in the art world. I mean, Jeffrey Deitch like invented the art collecting sector of Citibank. He was the marketing genius behind this is a, an asset class that big banks can take seriously. So Deitch was always sort of like very in the art world, but also had a pop spectrum, right? And he's like the Basquiat guy, yeah. right? He's the guy who like brings forward whatever was really profitable in the 80s that Whitney ISP type artists were resisting in the 90s. So he has this particular status. But at the same time, I mean, Ryan is at Team and Team has a little bit more of a nuanced program. Corey Archangel showing a team at the same time. It wasn't just commercial. It permeated other yeah. areas as well. Airy Weapons is like Iraq yeah. adjacent. That's maybe not so our world, but yeah. Airy Weapons is, I would not say adjacent. Yeah. I would say Airy Weapons is, is fully yeah. Iraq. And where okay. I'm going with this ultimately is, you know, my first real output into the world as an artist and the only feature film I've made to this day is a documentary film called Captured, which is about the life and work of Clayton Patterson and Elsa Rensa. And the tie-in here is that, you know, the entire score and the original music in there was provided by Airy Weapons. And so my output from that era was this film called Captured. Ironically, in an era now that we say like, this is this pure era of New York City and the, la you know, even then you're inevitably looking back and being like, damn, we really missed the ill shit that happened in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when we were just, you know, it's like, that is a very New mm. York thing. Like you wasn't there should replace Excelsior as like the New York State fucking motto because like that's, you know, whenever, whenever you're into whatever scene, <laughs> movement, like style, intellectual group you're attracted to in New York and you finally show up and get to be participate in it, the first thing someone is going to tell you is, oh, you just missed it. It ended like last uh -huh. year. So Clayton Patterson is an artist, photographer, documentarian, painter, sculptor. I would never say polymath, polymath or multi, <laughs> you know, that's like my joke is like, if, if they call you a multidisciplinary artist, they're dissing you. But the guy does it all, him and his wife, Elsa Rensa. And, you know, I met him at a very early age because I had actually made a film in high school 
I was like privileged enough to be able to do that. Clayton wrote an article about the film that we had made for Mass Appeal. And that was our first introduction. And ultimately that came out and whatever, like around the same time Julian and I met and the Twin Towers got, you know, <laughs> done in by my peoples and, and whatever else. And, you know, I had studied film. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of like New York cinema verite documentary filmmaking. And I didn't know what to make a film about. And I knew Clayton. And this guy has a still untapped archive of photos and hi and VHS tapes of like every real subcultural moment that exploded in the Lower East Side between like 84 and, you know, still going on to this day. And, you know, a big part of that story and the impetus for making that film captured was also the very rapid and physical gentrification would be the obvious word, but just sort of like rebuilding and remaking of lower Manhattan in real time. I mean, we were literally kids also, that's a whole other part of it, but that he understood and that he could talk to. And if we had been like, Hey, I wrote a treatment, like I'd like to have you sign this development deal and give me access to your, you know, like he would have been like, get the fuck out of here. And so that journey started in like Oh four, probably when we were still in school and technically finished it in 2008 and barely scratched the surface of his archives. We were sort of not randomly, but we were like individually going through this like 9X phone book style <laughs> typed out thing of what was on what tape and like selectively Whoa, digitizing man, pieces and crazy. scanning photos wow. and whatever. You know, that was almost 20 years ago now. So over the past five years, other people took it upon themselves with resources and drive and motivation to start formally digitizing and collecting this work in an official archive mm. capacity. Sort of the first project that I'm working on is, you know, a concept that's essentially Lower East Side graffiti, the photographs of Clayton Patterson. And Clayton is not a graffiti photographer. He is not embedded in graffiti culture, maybe in the same way I am. But that graffiti, as we talked about, is like this inescapable visual entry point into exploration of New York City. And so graffiti itself shows up in all of the different pieces of his archive as like its own character. And so you have this entry point that is like very broad and very wide and very abstract. You know, through that, create a small, beautiful, contextualized book that sort of takes you through the full breadth of like what this archive contains just to sort of like wet the beak and like start the conversation about like how truly, truly like unique and priceless and significant and important the work that is contained in this archive is. But it's kind of like the, the subject of the photo wouldn't be graffiti, right? It would be like a band or like some right. crazy shit on the street. And in the background... There. So it's almost like a book of analyzing the background of the photos. <laughs> but in, I mean, the it's same- kind of amazing, too, because like so often when we take photographs, I mean, like this is like straight up like Roland Barthes or whatever. But like when we take photographs, we think we're taking a photograph of a loved one or the house. But really, we're taking a photo of the context in which all that stuff existed. And it sounds like with this project, you're showing that one of the values of Clayton's archive is the incredible context that his eye or lens lent to his vision of New York. For historians and just for like later generations, that is so valuable, right? It's not the piece that was like very beautiful. It was like what shit was happening around that, that like set that into relief. And Clayton captures that seemingly effortlessly because he wasn't focusing on the graffiti. He was focusing on the life around it. Yeah, 100%. I think context is really like the most important piece of that puzzle. And also I think when maybe we talk about the contemporary 
contemporary landscape, the lack of context is maybe yeah. the problem with a lot of things these days. The other wild thing is that, you know, Clayton's photographs exist 40 years later, and I don't think any of the shit we're posting on Instagram is going to exist in 40 mm -hmm. years. I don't think there's going to be an archive of it. Well, I, yeah, I think the concept of archiving and physical archives when faced with the digital dilemma is a kind of mind-blowing thing. And when I think about that stuff where I'm like, damn, the only version of this photo I have exists is a screenshot right. of a screenshot of a screenshot that I have to keep texting myself so it like stays in the <laughs> iCloud or whatever. Whereas either photos I've taken or have been taken of me or work of Clayton's or whatever sit in a box and I think there's a lot of physical media that might as well be digital trash or whatever, but there is something that differentiates it. And it's also a conversation I have with him too, because he still takes photos every day and wants to get more and wants to gather more. And I have to be like, yo, you're never gonna capture an equal moment portrait action as what you've already done. And it's not because you're not still a great photographer or interesting people don't still exist. It's because a photograph is devalued. Mm. It's different than what it once was. I wonder, though, with Clayton's work, because his eye has been consistently looking at New York for, yeah, well, he was born in like 48 or something. He moved to New York in the late 70s or something like that. Yeah, 79. To have that trajectory. I mean, it's kind of like looking at like when Richard Kern takes photographs now or like Nan Golden or Larry Clark. There are these figures who, yes, photography has been devalued, but their particular vision, it's interesting just to see it in the continuum. Like, I am curious what Clayton Patterson sees when he goes out, when he passes, like, the Gary building. What does he see there, right? I'm curious about that. And, I mean, it's interesting on the flip side, someone like Wolfgang Tillmans, who was also very much documenting his friends and whatnot. To some extent, I guess Ryan's work is also vulnerable to this. It's like Instagram caught up with the, what they were doing, in a way, and very much influenced by both Wolfgang and Ryan. And, you know, they're also innovating in their own way now. But that original style that, like, made them famous, that's been, like, overtaken by the Instagram gaze, the influencer gaze or whatever. Maybe Clayton's is a little different, but yeah. I mean, talking about how the the way photos work right now, I mean, generally, I keep thinking about the fentanyl crisis in the United States and how fentanyl is this, like, very inexpensive to manufacture, like, artificial heroin basically but it is much more potent and lasts well, way less time and is way worse for you and way more likely to kill you and I started to think of that cheap easy to make artifice that's super addicting and short lasting that also is like really bad for you I keep thinking of that as like a metaphor for I don't know the way media is consumed or created now of like so smoking many smoking opium in a special place where you're reclining on special furniture well, there used or to be something ritual like, right. around it but the, yeah it's just a cheap super powerful super short-lived ersatz substitute and i feel like so much of america is about making these cheap ersatz mm. uh, addictive but bad for you substitutes of things because it's way more profit for the cartels whatever they might be a cartel of whether it's social media or drugs mm-hmm
Yeah, I mean, I think the concept of fentanyl as a metaphor for our times is, is genius because it's the end result of optimization mm. and technological right. advancement. What's the checklist? What are you looking for here? Like, you want to be numb. You want to be high. You want it to be fast. You want it to be cheap. You want it to be, quote unquote, like mm -hmm. pure, clean, and you want to know it's going to work. That's like, okay, we made it. It kills you instantly. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> totally. Carly lived on North Ninth. I love North Ninth. Nice. Vic was on shout, North out right? shout, shout out Purple Label. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That, King you're, of New York. Right, Not right, right, the person, yeah, yeah. The, the brand of heroin. I guess it is also worth saying that in the retelling of history, drugs played a huge role in forming friendships and bonds and fueling scenes in certain ways. And then also like really, really decimated my entire friend group and generation beyond personal friends in a way that is really, really crazy and still hard for me to parse through. I mean, I'm sober for many years now, and I would say most of my, like, sometimes it's a little um, support group style, like surviving Iraq, you know? But everyone who sort of made it for the most part is pretty much some type of 12-step sober or is totally out of their mind or is dead. And, you know, I don't want to, I guess, gloss over that, but very grateful that I get to be in the sober category and have a sane mind and have the ability to recall this stuff and continue to make things and continue to talk about the past, present, and future. We didn't get to cover Kid America, although shout out to Kid America. I think I'll link to Lil Hipsters in the <laughs> episode notes just because, I mean, it's a, a incredible. Yeah, Kid America and what Frankie was doing. And I know you mentioned semen sperms yeah. a little earlier. And like, you know, there was and always has been these waves of sort of like a little too <laughs> early and like a little too good for the masses. And I think some of what semen was doing with just even making flyers and styles of DJ and I guess what would now be essentially called digital art was like too out there and too early to find its footing. And the Kid America show, obviously, it was like such a genius thing. And again, something that could only happen by just being like, we just have to make this because we have to make it. And I think what happens now for me, for other people sort of our age in our position is that everything becomes like, okay, so like this is the treatment and like a proposed budget and maybe this person could be a partner mm. and this would work out and it would be good for this platform and this audience. And then it's like, once you're talking and thinking about that kind of stuff, you already are doing not the thing. doing yeah. the thing that you needed to do. And maybe <laughs> I also wanted to ask maybe to leave some wisdom because wisdom is different than knowledge. And maybe I think it's very good advice to don't professionalize for your first project or something. Don't professionalize off the jump. Yeah, make mm -hmm. the things. Participate in the world and the community and the conversation that is in front of you. And yes, now inevitably a lot of that has to be digital, but you do need to show up physically. You do need to like engage with other human beings. That is crucial. And one of the greatest things about filmmaking is that it's all a collaborative art, right? There is no, I'm just gonna go do this. I mean, I. Little internet maybe he does a you know shoot direct edit right VFX himself but like that's an old model <laughs> and it doesn't really work either yeah collaboration in a physical sense in a creative space is crucial to progress and understanding of who you are and what your work is about and what the world that you want to participate in will ultimately mm -hmm. be so I hope that that 
translates to some sort of knowledge versus wisdom. I was going to come with like some 5% <laughs> shit because I feel like the knowledge versus knowledge versus wisdom feels like... Uh, you just scream belly for... Uh, well, if you want me to talk for another 20 minutes, I listen to your analysis of belly. And I think that that's also a, another super important thing that is finally happening now that hasn't really happened as much as people want to say that it did for the past 40, 50 years, where not only hip hop, but very much specifically with hip hop, and we talked about graffiti a lot, is treated as like this other thing that can't actually be the mm. definitive culture and high art and an intellectual pursuit that deserves analysis and discourse and history and archive and whatever. And I think that does a great disservice to some of the greatest living and dead artists and movements and achievements of our time. And I actually really, really enjoyed listening to that breakdown and also thinking about maybe who you all have as an audience who, like you said, you're like, you've either seen Belly 20 times or you've probably <laughs> never seen it. And thinking about someone's first introduction to that being this intellectual analysis of something that, like you said, critics are like, oh, it's a hip hop gangster movie. It sucks. And you're like, maybe you're like not watching the same movie or maybe you're racist or maybe you're just jaded in a way that like you can't look at something objectively because it doesn't fit into the canon of culture with a capital C mm. really is. And I think that is one of the major positive things that I've seen in the past few years where the discourse and the approach to things that otherwise would be disregarded has sort of shifted into, you know, a more legitimate conversation. Also, people really don't understand how pioneering hip hop and black American culture was in adopting and using technology the way we use it today. Two-way pagers, smartphones. I'm sorry, the only people who bought sidekicks were black kids. <laughs> and those are the first phones where you could IM on the phone and play MP3s. Like Memphis Bleak said, I think in 1999, bitches don't talk to us, hoes, they email us. <laughs> And that was fucking crazy. <laughs> ben, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I think we needed a dose of KSR and um, you delivered in like massive form. Fun seeing. Amazing you, conversation. The knowledge you bring out of Julianne connecting to this pre-Carly zone of someday maybe I'll hear some more of the stories. I, I Maybe never. <laughs> it's really good that I, I live in a different city. That- <laughs> And spend spend every day with a different person from North Ninth. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Thank you both uh, so much for having me on. Definitely honored and excited to to be on the show. Thanks so cool. much. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Models Podcast, and thank you Ben Solomon for coming on the show. On Instagram and Twitter, Ben is at King Solomon. Switch out the O's for zeros. And for his work, you can check out his site, bensolomon.nyc. Thank you to everyone who wrote in with Sage Life Advice after the last episode. It's pretty cool to see how many parents there are tuning into new models, and we appreciate you reaching out. I'm pretty sure we're going to be calling on you all again in the coming months and years. More immediately, political scientist and repeat New Models podcast guest Kevin Munger will be leading a reading group via the New Models server on Willem Flusser's Communicology, Mutations in Human Relations. Rejected by MIT Press in 1979 for being too radical, the book has finally been published this year by Stanford University Press. 
It's an insanely prescient work that anticipates the problems of generative media. The group will be meeting weekly on the New Model server, and if you've read any of Kevin's writing or listened to him in conversation, you know this is a really cool opportunity to work with one of our generation's most interesting media theory minds. Lastly, New Models logo shirts are now available via shop.newmodels.io. They're short sleeve for the summer, 100% cotton, nice, drapey, box cut, custom New Models tags, and the white shirt features a short list of cities where New Models digital locals exist, and the black shirt has a special phosphorescent silver print that glows in the club. They're going pretty fast, so get yours while supplies last. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with a conversation with artist Simon Denny. Thanks again, and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. This episode contained the instrumentals to the diplomats Ground Zero and Jedikis if we gon' make it. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.